Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is August 25th, 2020, and my guest is philosopher and author Agnes Callard of the University of Chicago. I want to thank Plantronics for providing her with the Blackwire 5220 headset. This is Agnes's second appearance on Econ Talk. She was here in June of 2020 discussing philosophy, progress, and wisdom. Our topic for today is her book, Aspiration, The Agency of Becoming. Agnes, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thanks. What is aspiration? Aspiration is the rational process of value acquisition. And what does that mean in, in uh, everyday life? Give us some examples. It means, um, so if you think about like most of the things that you value right now, like in relation to your career or your kids, some hobbies you have, some of your like political values or ideology, um, if you just go back far enough, there'll be some point in your life when you didn't value those things, like before your kids existed, for example, or when you had different political beliefs, um, or when you hadn't yet like gotten super into some hobby or some novelist or something. And uh, so aspiration is how you got from there to here, um, how you came to care about the things that you care about. So an example I've used occasionally here is uh, Faulkner. Hated Faulkner, thought he was silly. You know, I tried to read The Sound and the Fury, read the first couple pages. I was 16, 17 years old. I thought, this is awful. And foolishly took a class on Faulkner and Conrad in college because I loved Conrad. And at the end of that class, I didn't like Conrad so much, and I love Faulkner. But in your language, I aspired. I could have. I got lucky in that case. But a person could aspire to appreciate Faulkner even though on first glance they don't like them. Yeah. yeah, so actually, I think that the I'm less inclined to separate the aspire cases and the get lucky cases. I think they tend to work together, aspiration and luck. So most of the things that we care about, there was an element of luck in how we got started. Um, but I don't think that there's anything anyone could have done to you such that sort of all of um, the explanation of your appreciation of Faulkner is the stuff that they did to you, right? There was some part of it where you were you were reading it, you were thinking about it, um, you were like coming to see that there was something there that you hadn't seen before and wanting to see more of that thing. That bit of the process that you're doing, that's aspiration. And you contrast it with ambition. So talk about, I mean, a lot of people aspire to be rich uh, or to travel a lot or something like that. Uh, what's the difference between ambition and aspiration? Yeah, good. So, um, you know, one thing I point out in my book is that the English word aspiration is a pretty good word for the thing I'm trying to talk about, but it's not a perfect word. So there are some ways that we use the English word aspire that don't correspond to what I mean when I'm talking about aspiration. And one of them is that we sometimes use aspiration, we use the word English word aspire to talk about um, uh Cases where the person isn't trying to learn to value anything new, they're just trying to satisfy a value or desire they already have. And that value might be sort of quite large scale and it might dominate their life, 
but they don't think they have more to learn in that respect about like what's valuable about the world. And so somebody who like, quote unquote, aspires to make a lot of money um, already knows why they want money. They're not trying to learn why they want money. They're not trying to learn why money is good. Um, interestingly, money is like one of the few things where like sort of um, the knowledge of why it's good seems to be one that people sort of take to be extremely available to themselves, right? To not in need of learning. Perhaps not correctly. A mistake, but, I think. Yeah, I agree. Um, but in any case, um, you know, they're not adopting an aspirational attitude. They just have a goal and they're trying to satisfy it. And that goal might, um, you know, require a lot of them, right? Uh, require a lot of work. But the goal is in itself value learning. And so those are cases of ambition. They're not cases of aspiration. Um, I also distinguish aspiration from something I call self-cultivation, which is a case where you are trying to learn to value something, but it's kind of a small thing where you know why you want to come to value that thing. Um, you're not changing yourself fundamentally. So a case where it's like, I want to start um, uh, wanting to exercise, right? I suppose I don't want to exercise, but I'm like, but if I wanted to, then I would be able to get myself to exercise more. And so I'm trying to change myself, right? But I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm trying to sort of add a desire to my repertoire because I have this other desire, say, for health, or I'm not learning with respect to that fundamental desire. So it's not a fundamental change. So both ambition and self-cultivation are distinct from aspiration, though people sometimes use the word aspiration for those phenomena. The reason I love what this book's about, and uh, as, as I think I've told you and as listeners know, I'm, I'm trying to write on some related issues myself, is that to me, this is sort of the essence of life. Uh, it's not like a little corner here. Oh, I, wouldn't it be nice if I liked, say, classical music, an example you use in the book? But most, uh, much of life is of this character that there are things I don't know much about it. I might not like it once I know more about it, but I'm open to the possibility. And as I explore it, I'm, my appreciation, my, my, my fundamental understanding of it is going to change. Yeah, so that's a great point. And I actually think this is something I, I feel is missing from the book, but I actually think there are sort of two, um, broadly speaking, two perspectives you could have on the way aspiration fits into a human life. And the one that you're gesturing at is sort of totalizing. You might think just most of what matters about life is value learning. It's like learning to value, to appreciate new things or to appreciate things more and more. And sort of life is this kind of you know, process where we are always aspiring and where aspiring is the fundamental essence of who we are. I call that the platonic picture, right? I think Plato thought of life as a kind of, um, you know, project of self-perfection. Aristotle, I think, disagreed with that. I think he thought, no, that the first part of your life is that, you know, maybe till age like 20, 30 or something. Um, like, yeah, you're cultivating yourself, you're learning, you're learning to value new things, but hey, life isn't all about you. At a certain point, the point of your life isn't like that you come to value more things or that you come to value things more perfectly, but that you learn to activate and exercise the values that you have so as to achieve those things, right? And so on the Aristotelian picture, you know, aspiration is really relegated to a part of your life and that may show up in other bits like it's not that it's completely gone right but this this question of how fundamental is aspiration to human life is itself one that i think one could have an interesting philosophical dispute about yeah well let's talk a little bit more about that for a minute even you know we'll, we'll get to other things too obviously but um I, I think there's a if we're not careful it's easy to confuse 
uh, self-perfection with what you're talking about. It's not just I'm going to get better and better at what I am. It's that I'm going to strive perhaps for some ethical improvement that that we want to make clear as part of your story, right? I'm going to be a better spouse. I'm going to be a better teacher. I'm going to be a better parent. That is self-perfection. It is, but it's not – to me, it's thinking about more – I want to value those things more than I already do. That's what I'm thinking of as self-perfection. Absolutely. It's self-improvement. Absolutely. Aristotle would think if you devoted your life to that, it would be selfish. It's not all about how perfect – it's not all about how improved you are. Sometimes your life should also be about other people. Right, but if I'm improving myself to be a better friend or a better spouse or parent, that would seem to be okay with both of them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that um, uh, even so, like there's something, um, there, I, at least I think um, there is something, and in and, and this I agree with both Plato and Aristotle, though maybe not with everyone, maybe not with you. I think there's something self-focused about aspiration, even when it's moral, even when I want to be a morally better person. And here, here's a way you could bring that out. Suppose I'm really aspiring um, um, to be, um, let's say I'm like a kid in school and I'm aspiring to be more courageous and to stand up to my peer group more, right? And, you know, I see something where I really should intervene, but I don't um, out of cowardice, Okay. And then the question is, how do I feel about that, right? And if I'm thinking of this fundamentally in terms of my own aspirational project to be more brave, I'll like feel bad about what this means for my cowardice. And, and, and I should feel that way. That's the right, that, that's a good response, right? But suppose that this had, suppose that I were not interested in my self-improvement project. I might just be like, ah, I feel bad about like that kid who got bullied where I didn't speak up. <laughs> like this is about them, not about me. Um, and I could, that's a kind of reaction where I forget the place of this event in my aspirational journey. Um, and so I do think that Aristotle thinks that at a certain point, like your character is kind of fixed and your life is no longer about coming to appreciate values more fully. You appreciate them to some degree. You should do as much good as you can with the appreciation that you've got. Yeah, I have to think about that some more. So I, I want to move on. It's a, it makes my head spin a little bit. Because, you know, I think of, you know, improving my character is to some extent a selfish, a self-centered uh, activity, but it also seems to have a lot of impact on the people around me. So I, 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 I'm going to hold both of those. Don't you think? Um, yes. Um, and Aristotle thinks a big part of why you should improve your character is the effect on the people around yeah, you. Yeah. But there is a, um, there's a question in, uh, of like what is coming to the fore of your attention. Yeah. Um, and there is a distinction, you know, if you think about anyone who's trying to learn anything, we don't fundamentally judge them on their achievements. We judge them on sort of their learning process and their progress in learning, right? Um, uh, and I think Aristotle thinks, yeah, not all of life is that. There's a, there's a part where you're done with that, where you're done with school, so to speak, and you're acting in the world, and you're to be judged by the results of what you do, um, not by their place in sort of like your learning process. Yeah, here's where I disagree with Aristotle then. <laughs> Easily said, since I really never read Aristotle, so let me take a crack at it. It yeah. seems to me that 
it takes a long time to be aware of how you do. I mean, it's one thing to say you're a great football player and it's time to stop practicing and get on the field. Yeah. Life isn't like that. I, I have trouble being aware of my, it's taken me 65 years to be aware of my character flaws. If I'd start at 30, I was way overconfident about myself, you know, abilities and my, and my self-righteousness. And I'm a, I think I'm a better person now, terribly flawed still, but it seems to me that it's a lifelong process. How could Aristotle argue that it's something you just kind of time now, time to get into the game. What's he, what's he thinking there? He's, so, a, he's an idiot, Agnes. Obviously overrated. Um, <laughs> I think that one thing that's interesting for me in terms of – I'm more drawn to Plato's view as well on this question, right? However, um, one thing that I find myself sort of um, bound up in is I think Plato's view on – their disagreement on this is very closely tied to their disagreement about the immortality of the soul. Right. So Aristotle thinks that when we die, we, we die and we're dead and we're gone and it's over. <laughs> um, he does not think that the soul can exist once the body is destroyed. Plato thinks, no, not only can the soul exist when the body is destroyed, it can be reincarnated and you can get future chances. There are interpretive questions over whether we are supposed to read Plato literally in the myths where he talks about this reincarnation. Some people don't. I'm sort of inclined to be like, "Eh, he probably thought something like that was plausible if he said it a bunch of times. But in any case, um, certainly whether you think, whether you buy the reincarnation bit, Plato or Socrates, and he definitely thought the soul was immortal, right? And you could see how the Socratic picture of kind of infinitely perfecting yourself, it, at least to me, it fits with the thought of the soul being immortal because yeah. it's like, but the Aristotelian picture is like, look, at some point you are someone, you are what you're going to be. And you should, you, you should sort of like inhabit the world in your full standing self and do what you can with that self. Um, uh, because, um, like it's something like the life is not a dress rehearsal. It's like some part of life is a dress rehearsal, Aristotle thinks. Um, and so, you know, maybe one way to think about it would be uh, to give Aristotle maybe a slightly more charitable view of Aristotle. It's not that you can't in, in some ways keep learning, but the sort of learning element of your life gets backgrounded relative to the doing element of your life. Yeah. Um, and the importance of that backgrounding for Aristotle is driven by the fact of death. Yeah, I, I, I see that. Uh, let, let's put this in some context for a 20-year-old listener who, um, you know, is listening to this thinking, oh, this aspiration stuff seems kind of good. Like for me, but I think it's partly because of my nature. I, I see it as sort of central aspiration. That's why I liked your book so much. For me, it's like the essence of how I think about my life story, my narrative, my personal arc. But if I'm 20 years old, it's like, what is all this highfalutin aspiration stuff? Is it going to make me happy, Agnes? Is it, or is it just going to be a burden? Well, I don't want to aspire to being a good person. Why would I do that? So I think that if I were talking to such a person, the first thing I would say is um, you already do aspire. I would just find some area in which they, as a matter of fact, I've never met a 20-year-old who didn't aspire in some way, um, at the very least romantically. There's a kind of problem about selling aspiration considered generally. I'm not even sure we should do it. Um, So one of the ways that people use the word aspire, another one of these ways where the English word aspire pulls apart from what I'm talking about philosophically is sometimes like if someone like, well, like goes to find themselves in Europe or something and they're just like wandering around, they're like, "I'm, I'm finding myself. We call we can call that aspiration sometimes. Right. And I don't call it aspiration. Like I, 
unless there's something more specific you're trying to find than yourself. That is, I think that um, it's pretty important that aspirational projects are tied to concrete values and we sell the aspirational project on the strength of the value, not on the strength of aspiration. Aspiration isn't a good thing. It actually kind of sucks. It often feels terrible. It means you're bad at something. You feel embarrassed and ashamed of yourself. You're learning instead of knowing. Like, none of that's good. Um, what's good is the improved condition that you're going to get to. And it's worth it because that value is important. And if it's that value is not important or if it's not worth the effort you're putting into it, you shouldn't do it. Um, and so, you know, it's both on the one I'm saying is both on the one hand, impossible to aspire in a generalized way. There's no such thing that you're doing. Um, and also in a concrete way, we would want to sell it on the strength of the particular value. But if what I'm trying to do is just show someone sort of what this is and that it shows up for them, I would just find some arena in which they are already doing it and sort of point out to them like th that this is something that they value. I guess for me, the process itself has a lot of value, and, and that's what I would, you know, I, mm. I would encourage young people to aspire, despite your, I mean, it's your word, your concept, your narrow, narrower focus. But it seems to me that the, the process by which I would call it, by which we grow in, in both, not just mastery, although that can be part of it. Mastery is not really exactly in the wheelhouse of what you're talking about, because mastery suggests you're already... If it's a skill, it's not really what we're talking about. You're really talking about something much right. deeper, which is, you know, often young people will will explore different religions because they mm -hmm. aspire to have a spiritual part of their life. And so they're going to try different things and see what what uniform, what clothing, what hat fits well with their with their self. Um, I, I think that's, again, not I don't want to push the too far that you should try that for 60 years. You, you probably want to wear some of it for a while and get into the game. Uh, but I think that the search, the process, the tasting uh, that you refer to at various times, the, the, the beginnings of seeing the value of the value that you're aspiring to seems to be a big part of, of what makes life meaningful for, for many people. Yeah. So, um, you know, this gets to sort of another one of my views, which is like, I sort of don't believe in advice. Um, and I think that like telling someone that they should aspire and try things out and be open to new things like that, that could be the right thing to say. If you knew the person, it could be exactly the wrong thing to say, right? You can easily conjure up situations in which it's the wrong thing to say. Um, like what I want to say is like, yeah, the right amount of that in a life is good um, at the right time. Um, but um you know, I think, I mean, one thing I guess I think I can say, like, so when I wrote the book, I had this view that this kind of open-ended aspiration where there's nothing in particular, you're no value that you have in view. You're just kind of almost like hoping something will hit you. Um, and you're just like, like the, the finding yourself idea. I, I thought that was just empty and that there was no, that was not aspiration. I then actually like refuted my own view in another paper I wrote after the book, which is to say, I think that you can actually set up very special contexts in which that kind of open-ended aim of growth in, in a certain institutional context actually can become productive. And I think that's what a college is. 
It's an institution that exists in order to make open-ended aspiration not be pointless. Mm -hmm. um, but you need a lot of structure in place for that to be possible, right? Um, you need there to be things like classes, right? Where a class is a good example of something where you're sort of selecting things and you're trying them out and you're seeing what resonates with you. And you, But it also, it's not just seeing what resonates, right? There's a structure inside of it that allows you to try and to strive, right? And to work. There's a kind of... Um, 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 there's a there's a manner of work that is laid out for you within the context of a given class, but then there's also all these other aspects of yourself that are being addressed by, you know, there are romantic opportunities, there are sports, um, there are cultural opportunities, right? So, um, so I actually think that sort of um, we are lucky enough, hope, so far, we still do live in a world in which um, there exist institutions for this purpose. Um, so it's kind of a contingent fact that it is possible now, and it wasn't at a certain time. Or not for many people, anyway. Yes. Um, I want to talk about this idea of giving advice for a minute. Uh, and we'll come mm -hmm. back to aspiration in a second. But you point out at a number of places in the book that an, an aspirant, a person who aspires, often will use a teacher or a role model uh, to help them. You're talking, you're kind of saying you're a little uncomfortable being such a role model until you're asked, is the way I take your, your statement, that proselytizing is um, not generally a good idea because you could encourage somebody to aspire to something that they might not like or be harmful to them. But otherwise, the doctor is in. I'm sitting at my, at my uh, table uh, on the sidewalk, and uh, if somebody comes by and wants to know what's great about, say, economics or Judaism, or being a Red Sox fan, three things I'm involved in, um, then I'm, I'm happy to tell them why, why it speaks to me, those things speak to me. But I shouldn't be out there telling people what they should aspire to, even, even aspiration. So you're not even, you're going to tell me, Agnes, you're not even going to tell people that philosophy is a good idea, or that thinking is a good idea, that they ought to aspire to be thinking? So I, I want to distinguish first between giving people advice and saying why something is good. So I think um, like, like I have a, an academic paper, okay, on aspiration in Elena Ferrante, uh, this novelist whose next novel is coming out in a couple days. I'm really excited. Uh, and when I write about Elena Ferrante, I'm actually trying among other things, to convey my own love and enthusiasm of the novels, yeah. right? I want to convey that to people. I think that's a good thing to do. Like show people what's beautiful in something because it helps them aspire, yeah. including aspiration, right? Yeah. Absolutely. But I think that's very different than telling someone what to do. Um, it's, it's not telling them you should choose this over something else because I don't know that they should choose it over something else. It's, you know, uh, it's, not it's not giving them a recipe for how they might succeed in that domain. Um, it really is in no sense telling them what to do. It's just showing them that here is a good thing that is in some sense available to them. Now, it's not that I want to deny um, either telling people what to do. I do that all the time. I'm totally comfortable telling people what to do. But the issue is not whether I know them. Sorry, the issue is not whether they've asked me. It's whether I know them. <laughs> I, I don't think I can productively tell someone what to do unless I know them pretty well. And so when people ask me for advice who are strangers, I fear that I will give them bad advice because I don't know them. Um, and, but something I can do for them is just explain why something is good or beautiful in such a way that it might hopefully resonate with them and they'll be sort of inspired to pursue it. That's absolutely a thing I can do, including with aspiration. And I, um, and I try to do it. 
Adam Smith says we care that our friends, um, we like that our friends like what we like and dislike what we dislike. And we care a lot more about the latter. We really want them to hate what we hate. That's really central, he argues. It's an interesting argument. But I'm just curious, when you were uh, telling me how beautiful Eleanor Ferrante's novels are, which who I've never read, and now, of course, I'm going to check her out, her books out. Um, is that a selfish, is that a self-centered goal, or is that an altruistic goal? Are you doing that for me or for you or for both? So Smith has this fascinating passage. I think it's towards the end of Theory of Moral Sentiments where he says something like, the basic function of like language is people want to be believed. Like they want to shape other people's opinions. They want, um, so they want to, in some sense, be followed. And language is like a tool for being followed, mm-hmm. right? And that's related to the thing you said about wanting your friends. We want, in some sense, we all want to be influencers, right? <laughs> is the thought there. Um, so, um, you know, and now, um, is that... So, so one thing is like that, you could say that's a fact about us. And then you can ask, is that fact selfish or selfless? Um, I suppose I think um, I agree with him that that's a fact about people. Uh, whether it's selfish or selfless, selfless, I actually think depends on how you do it, right? So um, like um, uh, there's a distinction in Plato's Gorgias between two kinds of persuasion, the kind of persuasion where you will do whatever it takes to persuade the person and the kind where you will only persuade them so long as you think what you're persuading them of is true. And Gorgias, who's an orator, who's a famous, respected orator, is like, I'm a master of persuasion. And Socrates is like, I want to know which kind. That's really super important to me. Is it the truth kind or is it the anything kind? Right. And I think that being really committed to persuading people and it being super important to you to persuade people of the truth of what you're saying and of the value of the things that you value, I think is not, it's at least not selfish in a blameworthy way so long as you are subjecting yourself to the constraint of doing the right kind of persuasion. So hard to know though, you know, yes, agree. Uh, for, for each of us. I, my wife has a skepticism about charisma, which I really uh, appreciate because I'm a sucker for charisma. Uh, charismatic speakers. She, her, my first, my first response to a charismatic speaker is to dive in. Yeah, take me. I'm, I'm yours. I, I love what you're saying. Yeah, I, I, I've got. To, I'm going to take it really seriously. Her first reaction is like, "Whoa, charisma." I'm, I, I don't want to be drawn in just by that. But of course, all a lot of great influencers are charismatic. I suspect Socrates was more than just logical. I suspect he was charismatic. Yeah, I mean, there's really interesting places in which he sort of tries to deny that. Um, at the beginning of the Apology, which is his speech of self-defense at his trial, he's he's on trial for his life for impiety and for corrupting the youth, right? And he opens his speech by denying that he's good at speaking. Yeah. And it's like, wait, what, Socrates? And he's like, look, what I do is I just say the words in the same order that they come into my head. I'm not like arranging them, which is kind of true because you get these other examples of speaking people like Gorgias uh, and, you know, company where they are, they're kind of rhyming, their talk kind of rhymes or it kind of, um, they, 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 they speak in an overly ornate way, etc. But there was something super charismatic about Socrates' simplicity, about the fact that he always talked about cobblers and, you know, use these everyday examples um, and so I, I think it can be very difficult to, um, dissociate yourself from that. 
Um, and it's something I think about very much because I think I am a charismatic speaker and a charismatic writer. And I worry about persuading people for the wrong reasons. So it's, it's absolutely something I think about. I had a Twitter thread this week about how, for me, that's like part of the real value of assigning like great books is that the book in a way is a kind of test and a kind of something independent of me that's in the classroom, like another voice. And if I say something that sounds super plausible or appealing about the book, a student will often raise their hand and be like, wait, that's not how I interpret it. Or what about this bit of evidence? And it gives them this, this sort of ground to use to push back against me. Yeah, I love that Twitter thread. We'll, we'll try to link to it. I, I thought that was very thoughtful about how dead people, it's harder for dead people to be charismatic. Uh, they only have their language. They only have their thoughts. They don't have their... Or oratory skills, their um, their physical appearance is a way to to en- to enhance their argument. Um, it's a very um, it's a very deep issue for me, and and just thinking, I think we like to think we're reasonable, meaning rational, but uh, the role that charisma plays in um, getting us to decide what we aspire to is, is not unimportant in our parents, right? Some of us were blessed or cursed with, I don't know which is better, a charismatic parent or an uncharismatic parent, but those parents, those teachers, and you know, there's a handful that all of us have in our lives. If we're lucky, it's more than a handful, but people that we remember who created this, a, a set of values for us and those aspirations you're, that, we're, that we're dancing around right now. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very grateful for them in my life. I, you know, and I've tried to tell them so. I think it's, uh, it's a great, it's a great thing. And so there, but there's a tension there between the power of that to open the world for you, right. Versus steer you down a path that, you know, maybe it's not so good for you, but, but you're seduced. Yeah. It's interesting when I think about it, cause I think I am a charismatic, charismatic say in relation to my students and to, you know, um, uh, people who read what I've written, but my, and this could be my own illusion, but my experience is that my children find me not at all charismatic, like not even slightly. Like if I, <laughs> it's almost like if you try any of that on us, we'll see through it in an instant. Yeah. Um, like, especially my 16 year old. Um, and so it's like this for me, almost like a very jarring ex- and jarring realism that I hit when I come home um, of people who don't find me charismatic. And I really kind of appreciate that the it's almost like the home world is a little bit of a um i'm like sheltered from something yeah there's an expression in hebrew that i think most people assume comes from um from the bible but i i don't think it does but it's a it's a deep a deep expression it's ain ain navi bim como not a prophet in his own place or in her own place so you know when you're out on the mountaintop talking to the masses people are like going nuts but you're back in your hometown it's like Isaiah, oh, that was that kid who had trouble with with algebra. He he's he's a nobody. So I think it's a um, when we come home, it is a, a time of um, humility, right? Yeah. Uh, and I think that's um, painful but healthy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's talk about rationality, which I think is uh, overrated. But as a philosopher, you're kind of stuck with it. Uh, <laughs> y- y- you say the following. I'm going to read two quotes from from the book. Aspirants, those who aspire, aspirants exhibit a distinct form of rationality that is not a matter of decision at all. You also write, I propose that the large transformations in people's lives are rational, though their rationality is not best captured 
through the framework of decision making. Talk about what that means. What do you mean by that? Those those two yeah. two expressions. Great. Um, I think that's a really important claim in the book. Um, so, um, and maybe one way to frame this whole thing is like you you might think I'm not such a big fan of rationality. It's overrated, etc. That's one thing. That's one way you could respond to a certain set of phenomena. And I think I'm looking at those same phenomena. What I'm saying is let's stretch the concept of rationality to cover some of that territory. Because part of the function of the idea of rationality is that it ought to cover a lot of what's important to us. Okay, so here's how I'm doing it. What I'm saying is that there's a um, there's a way there's a kind of classical way to think about um, rationality, and that is something like rational choices, right? And once I say rational choice, you're immediately in the framework where somebody has like a few different options. Those options somehow are magically pre-articulated for them. Like it, like we're automatically in the supermarket somehow, right? Yeah. A supermarket of choices. Um, and the question of their rationality is the question, which of those things do they pick, right? And in addition to the choices being given to them somehow magically, all the information that they will ever have about these choices is given to them somehow magically, okay? And some of that information might be information about what they don't know, right? Um, um, but that's also given, fixed. It's like everything is fixed there, right? And the question is just, okay, given these choices, given this information, given what they desire, which is also fixed, right? All those things fixed, what should they do, right? And, and ration, the, theory, the theory of rational choice is the theory of how to navigate that situation. And um, what I'm trying to say is that there are situations in life that require rationality where not all those assumptions can be met. Not all those things are fixed. Um, so there are, there's a kind of rationality that, we sh that we're expected to exercise when our information about a situation is in the process of changing. Our desires are in the process of changing. Um, and our mode of thinking about the value of the thing, in some sense, what would be what would correspond to deciding is itself also changing. Uh, and so um, there, the, the thing that marks what is happening as rational isn't the decision. There, in some sense, there isn't a decision. Um, there is a process, a temporally extended process, which is something like learning that involves changes in the information structure, the desire structure of the person. And part of, and, and in order to sort of pick out what is happening and see its rationality, you have to see a stretch of time. You can't just look at an instant, which is how you look at a decision. Yeah, I'm going to apply this to economics because obviously this is your opening somewhat satirical portrait of, of human being in the supermarket is the, the economist view of human behavior, which is we have given preferences we have a fixed amount of income or constrained by that income, and we choose those products that maximize our so-called utility uh, if, we, if we recognize the fact that the utility or pleasure we're going to get from our choices is uncertain. We solve that with either saying, oh, and I'm doing it over a lifetime. <laughs> it's intertemporal utility maximization. Or I might say, I'll do expected utility, which is a really sterile, narrow concept. And I think that view of the economic project is um, – I used to like it. I don't like it so much anymore. I think it's a um, – there's something robotic about it that I only appreciated after I read uh, James Buchanan at uh, my friend and former colleague Don Boudreau's encouragement where he says, that's not economics. That's just engineering. 
you give me my preferences and tell me my relative values of these different things, and then you show me the prices, and then I've got a, an engineering problem. That's not what life is about. Life is so much richer and more complicated. And we ought to, my view is, I don't know if this is Buchanan's view, but my view is you got to embrace that. You don't have to say, oh, I got to narrow the uncertainty. I got to figure it out. Like you say, just figuring out what's on the shelf is a huge part of the challenge of life. And the, the economic view, by the way, of the firm, of a company is, is given that it's making widgets, how many widgets should it make? That's the theory of the firm. When in fact, if you ask anybody in business or think about it for a minute, the real goal of challenge a firm faces is trying to figure out which market it's in, which widget kind of widget it should be making, not how many. Mm-hmm. How many is a, is a narrow, sterile problem. And similarly, it's not, oh, I've got these end goods <laughs> and this relative value of them. I don't know the value. I don't know how many goods they are, and I don't know which, which goods aren't in my, on the shelf that I ought to be pulling out of the shelf. Right. So maybe my view about the uh, economic agent is a little higher than yours, <laughs> which is that I think that that's a like, real and legitimate form of rationality. And I'm sure you don't deny that, right? Um, to figure out how many widgets you should make. Um, and I describe it as reasoning from value, right? So suppose you, all, suppose you do have all the information, right? What should you do? Um, suppose you do know what your options are and you have these desires and like then, you know, often the answer is very easy. <laughs> okay. So, um, um, but you know, what I'm trying to bring out is like, I, I can grant all that and I can grant that, um, that, um, that covers an important range of phenomena. Um, but there's an, there's still this question, like, where did we get these preferences? Where did they come from, right? And it's not true that they just pop into existence full grown like Athena from the head of Zeus, right? There's a story that can be told and telling that story and managing that story is super important to us. And so there's another thing called reasoning towards value. And that's the process I'm trying to describe. And one of the th- one of the sort of projects of my book is to say, don't assimilate these two things. They're not the same. We can't understand reasoning towards value as a special funny case of reasoning uh, from value. Um, there really is an important independence, and that independence has to come from the fact that reasoning towards value is a learning process. It's not a process you make from whatever information you have. You make it towards a better informational state, right? You're trying to learn, and you're trying to come to value. You're trying to you're moving towards having preferences. You're not moving, sort of jumping off from them. Um, and so, um, yeah, I I think that like we you know we we I want to hold on to both forms of rationality, but I also want to hold on to the thought that they're importantly distinct. Yeah, that's a great point. I I let's talk for a minute about self creation, which is a concept you mentioned in the book. Yeah, there's a certain paradox here, which is, um, yeah. I, I want to become something, um, more than I am, mm-hmm. but how can I do that? I already yeah. am what I am. So how can I aspire? It's already in me. So talk about that. Yeah. I think this is like the deepest part of the book. And this is a puzzle that I've been puzzling over basically my whole, like as far back as I can remember, um, which is, you know, it looks like Suppose that I become someone new. Suppose that I do it, okay, right? Um, um, that is, there's some fundamental change in me. Um, well, it looks like there are two possibilities. One of them is that that 
you know, the antecedents of that change were already buried in the old me. We often talk this when we talk about talents or innate predispositions or whatever. It's like the statue being hidden in the marble or something, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's one, one possibility, which is that didn't really change. That other thing was there at the beginning. We just didn't see it, yeah. right? The other possibility is like, no, there, there really is this radical shift. But then we want to say, okay, but then I didn't do it. Then that change is just something that happened to me that came from the outside. And so it looks like self-creation, where what you mean by that is turning yourself into something that really is substantively new and different from what you had before is impossible. It's like a logical contradiction, right? So that's one of the puzzles that I try to address in the book. And what I say is that, um, you know, the... The mistake that we make when we set up this puzzle is that we assume that um, what it means for the later self to sort of have antecedents in the earlier self, right? Um, uh, what it means for the fact that um, there is some kind of continuity between the two is that in a certain way you can sort of derive the later self from the earlier self. Um, where, and it, here's an example, a real example of how philosophers have actually talked about this. You could think of the, um, uh, the earlier self as making a promise, mm -hmm. like this is what I'm going to be like, and then the later self as keeping that promise. Okay. Um, and like the, the problem is like, why did the earlier self make that promise, right? Yeah. Um, uh, so that kind of model where the earlier self makes a decision or a commitment or in some sense shapes or governs or in is in charge of the later self, right? That's going to get you into one side of the dilemma, which is to say, uh, it's both like, well, then um, there was not a real substantive change. And then there's also the question, how did you get to that position? And, and there, there's a regress, right? But what I want to say is that you can conceive of the continuity between the earlier and the later self less like that, less like somebody making a promise uh, and then living up to it. And more like something like, um, here's another way we use the word promise, seeing something as promising, right? Um, seeing that there is something out there and you don't get it or grasp it. You don't master it. You're not in charge of it. Um, and you have this sense that if you work your way there, it's your later self who's going to be authoritative. It's your later self who will judge you. You don't get to judge her, right? She's going to be like, yeah, when I was younger, I totally, just like you said, my earlier self, I used to screw this up. I didn't quite get it, right? Um, and so the, the big mistake that sets up the paradox and makes it seem like self-creation is impossible is that we assume that if there's going to be any relation of continuity between the earlier and the later self, the earlier one has to be the authoritative one. And what I want to argue is that the later one is the authoritative one. And we're sort of working our way up. We're not in charge of or shaping or governing or molding or making our future selves. And I think past econ talk guest L.A. Paul uh, is more agnostic about that. Is that fair to say that, you know, before I'm a vampire, it seems kind of grotesque to me. But after I become one. I'm thinking, why was I that that pitiful little human before, and that there just there's just no way to solve that problem that before I make this transformation in her language and in your language before I achieve an aspiration, I've got two different decision making selves and they're they're not compatible. They they can't be made whole. What's your reaction to that? Yeah, so I think that's a good characterization of how Lori um, sees it and. Notice that you use the word decision-making selves. So I think the really big disagreement about with, between Lori and I 
is sort of how, whether or not we think there is some alternative to the framework of decision. And I think mm -hmm. she doesn't. So let me say sort of how we agree and then how we disagree. Okay, how we agree is Lori and I um, both want to resist a tendency to assimilate what some people call like small and big decisions. So like a small decision might be like what car to buy and a big decision might be, do I get married? Or do I go to college or what job do I want to have? Or like, um, you know, so, so a big decision would involve a change in your core preferences, right? Yeah. Do I become a vampire or not? Yeah. Okay. That's a big decision. Or a parent. And a small <laughs> or a parent. Exactly. Right. Um, and um, so the, uh, the, the, the standard sort of decision theorist response is like, we want to treat all these cases the same. It's just like, you know, the preferences are just um, bigger and more fundamental. But what Lori and I are noticing is that in these um, big decision cases, which I don't want to call that, but um, uh, the decision straddles two different preference bases. And that is super weird. Decision theory does not tell you how to navigate that situation because which set of preferences am I supposed to maximize, right? Um, and so, like, if I make this choice, I'll have different preferences, right? And that's the, that's the puzzle that Lori really expresses, I think, super well in her book. Um, and we both agree that that's, like, a big problem. And we both agree that that problem stands in the way of giving the standard decision theoretic analysis to these big decisions. But the where I part ways with her is... Um, I think, yeah, but we don't have to think of them as decisions, right? She thinks we do have to think of them as decisions, and then we're, we essentially end up in a situation where it's very hard to see any rational way to navigate them. I think they're not decisions, and we are capable of navigating them rationally. Uh, and the um, so the fundamental disagreement is whether um, we take the framing that we used for the choice of which car to buy, namely you're standing before two options and you need to at a certain moment make a decision about what to do. Do we do that for like, do I become a mother or not? Um, do we do it for um, career choice or do we think about those cases differently? And the way that I propose to think about them is that um, the choice or decision is essentially spread out over time in the form of a learning process. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, um, you know, it's, it's not right to think that um, becoming a mother is like this thing where like one day you find yourself a vampire and you have all these values that mothers have and it's like you've been transformed. Um, you know, it starts well before you even really think about having kids when you're babysitting for your you know, and you're thinking, oh, what it'd be like, that's the beginning of the aspirational process. And then, you know, your kid is born, it's not done then, it's far from done, right? You're still learning what it's like to become a mother because you, and you have to keep learning because it's different to be a mother of a teenager and of a toddler. Um, and so the, the process of acquiring these values is, on my view, not something that happens to you or is inflicted upon you by a decision that you make, but it's something you're working for as part of a learning process. Yeah, I really, I really like that. I think the only footnote I would add to that is the role of fiction and poetry to help us taste something that we can't taste. You know, we can't, we don't know what it's like to be a vampire. I would suggest we don't know what it's like to be a parent until we become a parent, um, which leads to some smugness on both sides, by the way. The, the, the non-parents look at those parents and say, I don't want to ever be that person. And the parents look back and say, oh, I'm so glad I, I didn't stay there. <laughs> uh, which, of course, is part of the vampire paradox. But it seems to me that fiction, uh, great fiction, and great poetry is a way to get 
a hint of how that learning might turn out? I think that's right. Like, I, I wouldn't want to restrict the function of great fiction to that because I, like, here's one way that I think about the role of fiction. I only get to live one life, right? And that life is filled with contingency and weirdness of like being born at a particular time, um, particular gender and particular society with certain set of things available to me. Um, but um, what fiction allows me to do is like pretend like I could live as a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. And um, it, so it feels hugely expansive of my life. It's like, instead of just one life, I get to live so many different lives and I get to carry some of those lives with me. You know, the really memorable bits um, I carry with me and they inform how I react to things because I can sort of react as me, like, and then I can react as Lila in like in one of the Ferrante novels. Um, I could be like, how would she, and it's, it's not like I ask myself, how would she do this or how would she respond? It's almost like it, it she just gets called to mind somehow. Um, and so, uh, so it, in a, I, I think in a much uh, more fundamental way, fiction just broadens the metaphysical space in which we live. Um, and then I think you're absolutely right that that has aspirational implications. Um, uh, that is because it does that, it opens us up in, in that way as well. That's a fascinating idea. Uh, you ever worry about inauthenticity? You're leading this sort of fictional, imaginary life rather than the real one you're, you're in for that fixed time. Assuming you're not like Plato, worrying about the immortal soul, but um, reincarnating itself. Is, is there anything inauthentic about that imagination of inhabiting that those different metaphysical spaces? I think I worry a lot about authenticity um, in general. So it's, it's a worry that speaks to me. Um, maybe I worry about it least when I'm reading fiction um, because there isn't a demand to be authentic. I'm like not in the story. There's no me there to be authentic to um, when I'm reading anyway. That's one of the things I like about fiction. Like, I'm a very self-absorbed person. I think about myself a lot. But when I'm reading fiction, I don't do it at all. And that's just awesome. Hmm. Um, uh, uh, so, but, when, but so I, and I, th- I take it in authenticity to be, the worries about inauthenticity be a form of self-absorption. Um, so that's why it speaks to me, because I'm a self-absorbed person. And um, so the question, am I acting or am I being real, right? That's the question of authenticity. And um, I think that, um, I actually would tend to think that fiction helps, even when you're not reading it, it sort of helps with that, which is to say, it's like, there's this thing that happens in life where you end up playing yourself. Like, everybody knows who so-and-so is like, right? And it's like, they kind of know it too, and they're playing the part of themselves. Sure. And I think that this kind of broadening where you, like, break up, you resist the boundaries of yourself, you resist the thought that this is who I have to be and what I have to act like, can actually help you feel sort of more authentic in that it it sort of like gives you the opportunity of not playing yourself um, and thereby makes you feel like the things you do and say and decide are sort of like the product of what you think is good rather than the product of this character that you're playing. Yeah. Well, at the risk of opening a Pandora's box, I want to mention free will uh, okay. because it strikes me that I'm now going to go back to some of your the distinction you're making between you and and Laura Paul's work. I think, and whether you yourself can jump out of yourself into a new self, that that seems like a a paradox. It it may be a paradox, but it's who we feel we are. Um, Like we may not have free will, but we feel like we do. 
And so while it's maybe true that we can't really remake ourselves, create ourselves out of whole cloth, we're not blank slates. We have all of the baggage of our genetics, our upbringing, our teachers, our mentors, our role models, our people we want to stay away from. But it feels like we can re- we can be reborn. It feels like we have that choice before us. And when we make a leap, even when it's a small one, like going on a diet <laughs> uh, or a big one, like uh, converting to a religion or leaving a religion or becoming a parent, it feels like we're in charge. And, um, you know, I, we haven't t- mentioned Harry Frankfurt's name, but, you know, he, he had this idea that that you're drawing on, which is that, and I've mentioned before here, that human beings have desires about their desires. That seems impossible, almost by definition. I mean, how can you have a desire about your desire? That's just your desire. But we feel like we can have desires. We can grow, like you talk about. We can go through that process. So how does that, how does your perspective, aren't you taking kind of a radical embrace of, of the opportunity of the belief in free will? I think what I'm saying is quite radical. Um, and it's, you know, it's pretty important to me as a philosopher. Like, like there might be a set of things I want to say, like we feel like we have X or whatever. I want to make sure I kind of have the right to say them. <laughs> like, even if we want to say it, if it's not true, we can't say it. Um, and on the other hand, I think if we strongly want to say it, we should look at the things that are making us feel like we can't say it and that it's not true and try and examine where, how we got to hear from there. So in particular, I think where you said, look, no, none of us is a blank slate. We're all influenced by other people. Um, I think that's absolutely true. And so any theory of aspiration has to take that into account. And the way that I do is to say, first of all, that in terms of your uh, the role of your agency in aspiration, it grows over time. So that you're you're doing less aspirational work when you're younger. That is, you're more under the sway of all the forces that are influencing you, right? So I think we need to acknowledge that we're not blank slates and that um, we are influenced in our aspirational trajectories by outside factors, more so when we're younger than later on. So when we're younger, a lot of what is happening in the aspirational journey is to be explained by um, parents and sort of like basic forms of care. Mm -hmm. And even along the way, at every point, there are mentors, there's a lot of help, help. Aspiration requires help. Um, But I think it's consistent with saying that I needed a lot of help to do something, that I'm the one who did it. Um, and I think it's consistent with saying, if I hadn't had certain kind of origins, I wouldn't have done it to say, I'm the one who did it. Um, so I think we want to, the story of aspiration has to be a story that makes a place for human agency inside a field of other agents and of also other kinds of forces on us. Um, to maybe say something about Frankfurt. So, um, you know, some of what I'm doing in a certain part of my book is actually sort of criticizing the Frankfurt framework as being too narrow. In a way, I think it's clear that we have desires about our desires, you know, in the sense that a drug addict might desire not to desire the drug, right? Um, And so we can take this like meta stance towards our appetitive urges. But I think that comes really far from capturing what is the whole field of phenomena that we call valuing. Um, that is, I think what Frankfurt is doing in introducing desires about desires is trying to take a step away from the sort of economic model where we just have this flat field of preferences and some of them might be stronger than others 
And he's like, no, 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 we need more architecture of the self than that. So let me like iterate it. Um, and I'm saying like, that's not enough. That's not what architecture of the self is. Um, you actually need something other than desires in your story. You need values. And values aren't just urges to do things. Values involve a cognitive component where you evaluate the thing as being really genuinely good. They involve an emotional or affective component where like you feel a sense of loss if the thing is destroyed and you feel anger if it's threatened or like, you know, infringed upon in certain ways. Um, and then they do also involve motivational components like desires. And so you know, what, part of what, you know, part of my response to this sort of um, free will problem is to say that that problem is more intractable with a more impoverished version of the self. Explain. So, like, if the self is just a bundle of desires, imagine that it's a bundle of desires, and then you've got one bundle over here, and then later you got a different bundle. It's like, what's going to connect those two things if it's really a different bundle, Right. It looks like that's just two selves. Um, uh, and, um, um, or you want to say, oh, no, it's the same because the core bit is the same here and here. You're like, okay, then it didn't change, right? And there's our puzzle about self-creation. But if what the self is, is these sort of value structures that are like organic wholes that have cognitive parts and desiderative parts and affective, like um, emotional parts, um, and those things can like slowly change over time and grow, right? Then that's like, um, you know, the way in which a baby and like an adult can look really different, but be one person, right? Because the organs can grow. And so you can see the thing changing radically, but nonetheless being one thing. Well, you know, as a Hayekian, I like the idea of an organic emergence to the adult self or the new self. Uh, I'm a big fan of that. Let, let's talk for a minute about tradition. Um, after I read uh L.A. Paul's book, and after I read yours and got involved in Twitter on some questions about whether it's how we would rationally decide to have children, it's one mm. thing that struck me is that tradition solved that problem until recently. You know, through most of human history, maybe we talked about this the last time, I, I don't remember, but through most of human history, it's not a decision to have a child, just it's what you did. It's what your religion pushed you in that direction or your culture pushed you in that direction. And we live in this interesting, fascinating time now where a lot of the strictures and constraints of tradition are either gone or not felt by the, the aspirant. And I feel like a lot of people are struggling with this saying like, well, I don't know where to start in aspiring because everything's open to me. It's like, it's not just, you know, in the economics view, everything's on the shelf. There's a certain set of things on the shelf you have to choose from. And we know that's too narrow. But now it's like we're in an infinite supermarket which is a little bit like Amazon, actually, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, any, any book you want, take your time. Right. And it's like, well, what do I do now? And the answer is we, we, we evolve and emer things emerge to help us make those decisions. And they'll do the same for child you know, bearing as well. But I find it fascinating how free many of us are from, from those traditions of the past. Yeah. So one thing that's super interesting about that, that I hadn't ever thought of until you put it this way, is there's a way in which an aspirational culture is going to be a little bit in conflict with a childbearing culture. So, you know, there's like that there was a time when having children was just what you did. Right. And for women, that was like pretty much what your life was devoted yeah. to. And there was no like, 
it wasn't like, well, where do you, in what area do you think you feel you can aspire, right? It was like, this is how you live. And, you know, we've moved towards a more aspirational culture in the sense that we think people like ought to pursue their talents and ought to try to engage in this process of finding what they should value. But then that removes this kind of default option of childbearing. Yeah. Um, well said. And so it pushes away in a way, it pushes the whole system a bit away from childbearing. Yeah, that, that seems right. Um, and I think that, um, that this problem, the problem of too open aspiration is one that I'm sensitive to. As I say in the book, I thought it was a more decisive problem than I now think it is because I thought you can't aspire in a situation where you're not tuned into some values. Um, I still think it's pretty hard and you need an institutional structure. But I do think that's one of the one of the big reasons people are drawn to college is that it's the answer to the question, what should I do if I have no idea what I should do with my life? And we've put people into a position, our, our culture has put people into a position for better or worse, where they don't know what they should do with their lives when they graduate high school because um, tradition doesn't tell them what to do. Yeah, you don't just become the blacksmith's apprentice uh, or the work in the factory like your parents did downtown in the town where, where it's a one, you know, it's a, a factory town. Um, and that's liberating and exhilarating and scary, which is part of life. Yeah. Like, um, um, so Sartre, which who, who Lori Paul picks up on, I actually think in her um, thinking about this, um, you know, thought that like, we all want freedom, but freedom is also unbearable. We can't tolerate our freedom. It's hard. Um, and we need to constantly, produce stories of how we're like caused and determined and forced and because we kind of can't handle, we want people to tell us what to do instead of having to figure out what to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, before we leave uh, Laura Paul, can you talk about her example, which I'm fascinated by of, of the mediocre chess player? So in the mediocre chess player, uh, the mediocre chess player could only look ahead two or three moves and she, which is life. <laughs> uh, if we're lucky two or three, and therefore, uh, she suggests, though, that there's still room for rationality because you know that a rook is more valuable than a bishop and and so on. Um, what are your thoughts on that as a way of thinking about the uncertainty of life? And if you disagree with that, which I suspect you do, uh, what, how do you think we should cope with that uncertainty uh, about about where we're headed? Yeah, so – I think that the sort of um, the space that the mediocre chess player clearly sees, like where he sees, you know, the relative values of certain pieces, that's like um, the small decisions, right, mm -hmm. of life. Mm -hmm. And what Laurie is using that example to express is, uh, other than a chess genius, um, people don't, um, and in life there are no such people, um, people don't. Um, see with that kind of clarity, like the end of the game, right? They can't, they can't. Um, and so then the question is, what is the importance of that kind of clarity? Um, and, and that's where Laurie and I disagree. So I think, yeah, we're all mediocre chess players in the sense that we can't with clarity see 20 moves ahead. And what we clearly see is just the one move or two moves ahead. But there's another part of the story, which is what we unclearly see. And that's a really important part of the story. And it's part of your vision when you're playing chess of life, that there's a lot that you unclearly see. And it's not just that you unclearly see it, but that you can work your way towards seeing it more clearly. And so a lot of life isn't about trading pieces, but about getting that vision into view. Beautifully said. Um, I don't think, by the way, a great chess player doesn't look ahead 12 moves. 
Great chess player uses a different approach, looks for territory, mm. looks, and she alludes to that. I don't want to suggest she doesn't, she's not aware of that, mm. but I think that's really the difference. And I think it, it gets it, I don't know how to say it, so I won't try, but I think it has to do with this rationality argument. It's it's sort of a too narrow a definition of rationality in playing chess that you look ahead, you know, further. That's your, a great, right. you get better, better at chess by looking more and more moves ahead. That's sort of like the economist view of chess. I think it's the wrong, the wrong way to think about it. Uh, let let's shift gears. Let's talk about uh, weakness of will. Uh, there's a Greek word for that, which I want you to talk about. The two ways, say the word, and then the two ways to pronounce it. <laughs> akrasia. You can say also. You can say akrasia. There's also the Latin word. There's a lot of words for it. It's also called incontinence because it was translated into Latin as incontinentia. It's also called weakness of will. Um, Spell so it. It's interesting. Akrasia. I'm going to say it. A-K-R-A-S-I-A. Because in Greek, it comes from the word kratos, strength. And it's the absence. Mm. Uh, the alpha ah. privative is the absence of strength. Yeah, nice. So weakness. So talk about uh, weakness of will and how you or Akrasia, Akrasia, uh, how that fits into your um, your framework. Because, you know, I've talked about a lot in this program, my, my tendency to eat peanuts in the middle of the day. Uh, and I realized, by the way, that I can blame my dad for this because when, when he was a great reader and he used to curl up with a bowl of popcorn, and I thought, I like that. I'm going to do that too. I'm going to be a reader. I'm going to eat popcorn when I read. And I do. I eat nuts or whatever it is. And so when I'm starting a book or an article on, online, I have this incredible urge to get up and grab something to eat mindlessly while I'm reading. And I'm trying to break that habit. So Talk about aspiration in that context. Of course, some things are more important than peanuts. Go ahead. That example actually fits my theory really well. So um, maybe first I'll just give a little background, which is that this whole book, Aspiration, started out as a book about weakness of will. Or not a book. It started out as a theory of weakness of will. And I wrote my dissertation on weakness of will. I've been sort of fascinated and obsessed by it for a long time. But how can it be that somebody acts against their better judgment? Like if they know that something is the better thing to do, why don't they just do it, right? It's super puzzling. Puzzling for economists, puzzling for philosophers. Everyone puzzles over it. And so I wrote my dissertation on it. But then I, you know, you go and like you give job talks at different schools when you're on the job market. And my dissertation just got totally refuted. Um, so I was like, okay, starting over. And like, I started over with a new theory of weakness of will. And I was really pleased with this new theory. I thought it was much better than my old theory, but it was still getting refuted. I was giving talks. I gave a talk at MIT in particular, where this person just came up with this like great counterexample. I can't remember the details of the counterexample right now, but maybe I'll be able to if I thought of it long enough. But in any case, the, but here's the problem. People kept giving these really good objections. And I kept being like, I know these are good objections, but I still think this is a pretty good theory. I want to hold on to my theory, even though the objections are correct. And then I had this epiphany. I'm like, oh, it's not a theory of weakness of will. It's a theory of something else that philosophers haven't yet talked about. And then eventually I came to the word aspiration, which is totally the right word for it. But it took me a while to like find that word. So anyway, I was this, the weirdest way someone ever came up with a theory of something is try to make a theory of something else and then just keep the theory but shift the topic. Um, so that's how this, this idea, this book came about. It's like off-label drug use. It's the same idea. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like that. So, um, but it does sort of entail a, a picture of weakness of will. It's just that that picture is doesn't generalize to being the whole theory, which is where I was getting into trouble. So the way that I want to think about weakness of will is sort of like arrested development, like arrested aspiration, um, where like if you think about something that you're weak-willed about, um, you can sort of go back to a time in your life when that was just your way of doing things. 
like the, the, the nuts is the perfect example, right? Because it's like you kind of actually aspired to be like your dad and to do this thing with eating nuts, right? And then like the aspiration got sort of stopped at a certain point um, um, in that you never came like, you know, you um, you sort of continued to have the tendencies associated with a certain form of valuing, but you sort of developed this other form of valuing as well. And so like, um, like a way to think about it might be when you were a kid, you just wanted to eat as much yummy stuff as possible. Right. And like, um, and then you, you aspired at some point, all of us to try to eat and think in a more healthy way, but that like didn't complete, like it, it didn't do a total takeover of the earlier point of view. And it's like your past self is still in you. The self that it, um, maybe a better way to think about it is like aspiration resistant. There's an aspiration resistant self in you that didn't get fully transformed. So there's a kind of recalcitrant point of view that is still part of who you are. And you still see the world from that point of view. It's not someone else. It's not compulsion. It's not external, right? It's the old you that you have only partly sort of developed out of. So when I am the part that fascinates me about this, besides the economist part of me, and by the way, I think the way most people in the real world, when they, when they hear that, oh, economists and philosophers are really troubled by this, the average person goes, well, they're idiots. They've got these silly models that they're stuck with <laughs> that they're trying to reconcile. What do you mean? It's hard. Life's full of hard things, and it's hard to do the right thing. What's the mystery? Uh, but when I, what I find fascinating about it is the um, you, you actually, if, as you get older, if you're lucky or not, but I notice that as I get older, I get to glimpse both of myself. So I get up to get the nuts, and I realize, oh, I'm doing this compulsive thing I've developed a habit over. I don't really like this habit, and I'm going to eat the nuts anyway. And I, what I found use, what I'm exploring right now in my personal improvement project called me, is using a little bit of your language. Uh, and, and when I get to the shelf where the nuts are, I say, well, I aspire to be a person who's not a nut eater while he's reading. Now, I still often going to eat the nuts, but I, I think that language, or I want to be the kind of person who, fell in the blank, does the right thing, helps the neighbor across the street rather than does the you know, thing that's convenient for me, uh, reads to my kid even when I'm busy and have stuff I'd rather do. Um, I think that language is helpful in thinking about, you know, you get to the, the first level is, oh, I step back and I say, I have two selves. The next level is, which self do I want to be? Oh, I'm stuck in that old one. But if I learn enough, is your language, maybe I can get to be the self I aspire to. Yes, I think, th so I have two thoughts about that. So one of them is just, it reminds me of a colleague of mine who like once told me like one of her, or maybe I even heard it secondhand, you know, through someone else, thirdhand. Um, uh, uh, one of the ways she talks to her students about like not cheating, like why shouldn't you cheat on a test, say like, it's not because you'll be punished. Um, it's because if you cheat, you'll be a cheater and you don't want to be a cheater. <laughs> and that like, I was like, that's pretty effective psychologically. Like if someone's going to motivate me, like that would really motivate me to be like, I don't want, that's not who I want to be. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so, um, and I think it, you know, like maybe it won't motivate everyone, but I think that it shows a certain kind of faith in your students to be like, I think this will, this is how you should be motivated. This is how your motivational structure should work. Um, but that said, and I think that's a, that's a worthwhile project and all of that. I also just think like, I'm a little bit of a realist about Acrosia in the sense that there's just a lot of battles with myself. I've given up on fighting, um, where like, um, 
I'm sort of like okay with the fact that in a bunch of ways, my behavior is not maximally efficient <laughs> um, in terms of like, I'm pretty distractible. Um, I am um, um, like, yeah, I don't always eat great. Um, I find it hard to keep myself on schedules. And like, I've tried to change those things about myself and myself just keeps resisting. And on a bunch of fronts, I'm like, you know, one of the things that, one of the ways in which life is a learning process is you also learn like who you are and your limits. And even something like, you know, there can be sort of advantages to being really, really distractible, which is like, I think it's sort of connected to creativity in ways. Like even if you you could have had this fixed idea about yourself that like, I'm going to sit here and I'm going to do this and I'm not going to think about something else. And it's like, that doesn't work for me. Um, uh, so some of it is also feedback of like, um, you know, the self doesn't just let you mold it into whatever you want it to be. Yeah, I think that's a rationalization, Agnes, you ought to be worried about. Um, <laughs> but maybe. But I, I think the at the root of this issue, to be more serious, is the question of habituation. And you, you spend a little bit of time on it. I, I wish you'd spent more. Uh, Dan Klein, in his uh, discussion of honest income on the program a while back, talked about this this importance of of becoming – habituated to what is higher, to what is less self-interest, less selfish. And that once we, the way he phrased it, I think, is that we should try to turn our virtues into things that we should start, we should find, we should do good things because eventually we'll get pleasure from being less selfish. And then it'll just be self-interested. And so there's this sort of tautological way of saying, yeah, well, that's in yourself. You feel good when you're doing the right thing. But that takes work. And I think that's the connection between his claim and your framework, which I find very beautiful. The peanuts and popcorn are a trivial example, but the grander projects of you know, helping others and being a good parent, friend, child, et cetera, um, I, I think it's about habituating yourself to – to the good things that we want to aspire to, and then they just become self-interested. So maybe at this point, it's actually really important to introduce a distinction that I feel the book should have made between two different kinds of aspiration, moral and non-moral. Mm, yeah. So I think it's very important that we aspire in both of these ways. They're both full-fledged cases of aspiration. That is, we aspire to be morally better people, and we also aspire to do things that have nothing to do with being a morally better person, like to appreciate classical music, right? And so, I mean, even there, it's not that it's nothing to do with it, but I'm not doing that in order to benefit anyone, or right? I'm just because there's a genuinely valuable thing out there, and I want to appreciate it. Um, those are both kinds of uh, aspiration, and I think that, like, you're absolutely right that sort of accepting your limitations when it comes to moral um, aspirations is rationalization. And that's a fact, and a really interesting, super interesting fact about morality, which is that it's just written into morality that um, you can't be prohibited from it through a dispositional fact about you. So I can be prohibited from appreciating music through a dispositional fact about me. I could be deaf, right? Tone deaf, um, yeah. Exactly, right? Um, but um, I can't be prohibited from being a just or generous person through any dispositional fact about me. Why do you yeah. say that? Why can't I? Why can't it be the case that I'm that I was brought up badly, cruelly, yeah. without love, and therefore it's hard for me to be a kind person, and I'm not just like a tone deaf person. 
I think it can be hard. Um, okay. So I'm not denying that. It could be a lot harder for you. Um, but I think that, like, like supposing that someone, um, what we're imagining here is the case of somebody engaged in an aspirational project, but sort of like coming to realize potentially that this is not going anywhere as happened with me and music. Um, and like, there can be cases where it's reasonable for like an advisor or a mentor to say to you, you are not getting anywhere with this. You just suck at it. Give up. Okay. Mm -hmm. And maybe not in those words, but like that can be a reasonable like um, intervention. And what I'm saying is if somebody is in a moral aspirational project, which already presupposes they have some grip on the moral concept because more, more Aspiration means you're already made some progress, right? It never makes sense, I don't think, to say, um, well, you're just not, you just don't have it in you to become any kinder than you are. You should just give up. Um, and I think that's kind of a conceptual fact about morality that we we don't accept that that could be true. No, but I think, yeah, I, I agree with you. But I, I think the Dan Klein's point about habituation and, and making your virtues a form of self-interest, make your virtuous acts self-interested I think it's easier for some people than others. I think some people just Absolutely. like they're spiritually or musically tone deaf. They're emotionally tone deaf. They don't get even the taste of satisfaction of that connect human connection that sometimes a good deed will produce that you can then build on. So I think, um, you know, one of the lessons I get from our conversation is that uh, even though I'm a big believer in free will, I'm at the same time a big believer in not judging other people for not living up to my standards that I hold myself to sometimes or try to hold myself to because I think we vary so much in how easy or difficult it is to make, make those uh, actions, to do those actions. Oh, absolutely. So I, I didn't mean to be denying that there are constitutional differences and that those differences make things easier or harder. Aristotle actually has a nice discussion of this. He calls this natural virtue. So he, but he, what he sort of means is that some people are naturally such as to just like be brave. Like, so I have like one son who is naturally courageous, like, and, and I, by that, I don't mean rash or reckless. I mean, like he kind of gets what the courageous thing to do is and he does it. And I have another son who is naturally incredibly empathetic and kind and compassionate. And it's not learned. Like he just was that from, from, yeah. you know, a, a tiny kid that he thinks about other people. Yeah. Right. And they're not the same kid. <laughs> yeah. um, so like people, you know, have a, and my third kid is naturally extremely judicious and just and fair-minded, right? And so I, I think that's absolutely right that, um, you know, we have, there are constitutional facts about us that make the path towards virtue in one area easier than in others. Let's close and talk about neuroscience, which I don't think you talk about in the book. Um, I don't think neuroscience in general would, neuroscientists in general would like your approach. I think they would say, uh, the brain is a committee. Uh, the brain has these different pieces that evolved for different reasons through our evolutionary history, and <clears throat> they don't all get along. <laughs> They'd say that's just life. That's biological. It's not a question of all this. All this stuff about um, Aristotle and Plato. That's just uh, so much chin music. I don't even know what that means, but it's uh, a phrase that I think. I think I got it from Woody Allen a long, long time ago, or somebody else. I don't know, but meaning that's just nonsense. It just, it just, you're just it's an intellectual game, not really relevant. We're we're, we're conflicted through our uh, equipment, 
our hardware and our software, and that's just the way it is. You want to respond to that? Sure. Let me first say, you know, what what this reminds me of is almost like uh, macroeconomics. <laughs> like you could say, well, look, all there is is these individual economic exchanges, and we can study those, right? But we can't study the whole economy, right? Um, and it's like, well, some people think you can, right? So, um, it wouldn't follow from the fact that the system is composed of a bunch of individual things that there is no possibility of studying at the higher level. That's just sort of an abstract point. But more specifically, I think the way that, you know, I would talk to the, neuro the neuroscientist is a human, just like anyone else. And so they have ways of talking about themselves and their lives, for instance, how they got interested in neuroscience, and when they do that, they can either speak about themselves in a way that is like coherent or incoherent. And I can sort of help them with that. I'd be like, you know, when you talk about how you got interested in neuroscience, like you have one way of talking about it where you say like, oh, well, there were these truths. And I got, and you have this other way where you're like, I, I met these, this charismatic professor and I was at this place. Um, and then you could also talk about your brain, I guess, right? Um, though that's not usually how you present it to people when you're explaining yourself, right? Um, and so there are, the, these, there, there are these different ways we have of speaking and communicating about ourselves. And um, like, if you just want to dismiss them, you can, and there's nothing I can do to prevent you from doing that, but you're going to keep doing it. Like, you're not really dismissing it. You're not sincere because you're going to keep talking about yourself using all the language that I use in my book. And what I'm trying to do is help you to do that in a way that is like consistent and coherent and makes sense. And, um, you know, like, actually, you just don't believe, like, you don't study the thing I'm talking about. But it's not true that you believe that it's valueless, because you just use it all the time. Yes, I want to agree with that, and then disagree with that, and let you get the last word. So the, I agree with you that no neuroscientist is going to say, when asked, how'd you get into it? They're going to say, well, I guess my brain just kind of, <laughs> some things fired over here, and I ended up going over there, and I, who knows? But at the same time, I, I think, one of the challenges I think we face as economists and philosophers is the narratives we tell ourselves and that we convince ourselves to explain why we did what we did. And, you know, we we want to make sense. We want causation to be there. We want to tell a rational story. And a lot of times we're just playing with words, strikes me. Um, how do you how do you answer that? I think that's true, but not all the time. So philosophers are people who believe that there's a hope of getting that right. Um, and that if we think about it like clearly and systematically and we draw the right distinctions and we attune ourselves to influences that are important, like even from literature and from inspiration and all of that, that we can do a better job of that. Right. So the, like, I think that it, doesn't make sense to dismiss that whole practice on the fact that we routinely screw it up. We are, you know, have this kind of tendency to, um, to tell the story that we want to hear. That is true, but it's not true that that's not a thing we can, that, that like we can fight that. <laughs> um, and that's what philosophers are trying to do. They're trying to make the story that humanity tells of itself better. My guest today has been Agnes Callard. Her book is Aspiration. Agnes, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. My pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. 
Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.